When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode of Motherfuck Lore is brought to you by the show's generous supporters on Patreon. Supporters like Gabriel Beecham, Mila Buikas Gabriel. Listeners who support the show on Patreon get access to a range of bonus content, including bonus episodes, blooper reels, access to our Discord server where you can chat with other fans about episodes, and much more. Check it out at patreon.com forward slash dark. And now the show. From the Headstuff Podcast Network, welcome to Motherfuck Lore, a podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Dark O'Shea. And I am Padar Koivani. Did we have to leave that gap in after the I? Was that a, yes. was that a thing? That's a thing we're doing this week. It's, it's a thing now. Apparently that little <laughs> gap is, you know, it, <laughs> it makes people, you know, relax. They know what's going on. Um, <laughs> it put me on tenterhooks. It put me on edge. <laughs> It was the opposite effect with me. Was, and I, what's he going to say? Oh, he's Derek O'Shea. Yeah, no, I knew that. This could go anywhere, you know. Who knows? <laughs> Dramatic pauses. That's what it's all about. Patter, how are you getting on? You staying well? Yeah, staying well, keeping well. Mm-hmm. Trying to, trying to anyway. Sure, like, I, I mean, every week we do this. Like, how are you getting on? What's going on? My life has not changed since last week. I have the same four walls and the same five kilometers. And to be honest with you, I'm lucky, I'm happy, I'm healthy. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm looking after myself. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yes, I'm constantly reminded of Oscar Wilde's line about the wallpaper. <laughs> I mean, you have to. You're not on your deathbed. You can change the wallpaper if you want. I believe that's an essential purchase. <laughs> We've been doing a few episodes recently on place names, and we got some really interesting feedback from our listeners. And if you have a favorite place name, or live near somewhere with an interesting place name, or have a place name related story, you can send us a voice note on our WhatsApp number. It's in the show notes. In the meantime, have a listen to this. Hello, it's Misha Ronan O Dunpadrig Gundian Dun. I'm a long-time listener of the podcast, and I've really enjoyed your recent series on Loganyam Nyacha, particularly your mountain-themed episode. I'm heavily involved in the subcultures of uh, climbing and mountain running in Ireland, and my home patch is Nabanabarcha, the Morns. Every place name tells a story. We have some great Loganyam Nyacha in the Morns, both in Irish and in English. There's evocative names like Sleep Barna, The Gap, mountain or the devil's bite as it's locally called which is beside polifuka the gap of the puka there's descriptive names like lamagan uh, sleeve lawag is glunia hands and knees teve dakra teve jackrach the uh, difficult slope sleeve mean the smooth mountain ben crom the stooped mountain we have sleeve meal more and sleeve meal bag confusingly sleeve meal bag is actually taller than sleeve meal more and then we have a whole series of mountains named after after animals we've got the buzzards roost sleeve nomadi the mountain of the dogs tornum rock the tor of the the badgers loch shanna the loch of the foxes 
We've also bizarrely got a mountain called Percy Beach, which I've never understood what the connection is to Percy Beach Shelley. Anyway, that, that's a snapshot of, of Luganyamnyacha in one corner of Ireland. What, what I love is that there's heritage and stories like this everywhere across the country if you go looking for it. So thank you for shining a light on it. So, Slan Agus Garamayagov. Thank you so much, Ronan, for that wonderful message. It really is interesting that there's a peak and a granite cave named after Percy Beach, Percy Beach Shelley, who famously wrote a poem about Mont Blanc, the biggest mountain in the Alps. Before Everest was discovered, Mont Blanc was considered to be the highest mountain in the world. Maybe that has a bearing on a mountain in the Mourns being named after this particular poet who didn't have any other association with Ireland as far as I know. It was a different Percy. In fact, Percy French from French Park, Henry Common, who made the Mourns famous internationally in his 1896 song, This Mountain's a Mourn. It's a beautiful part of the world, and many claim the Banaborcha inspired local man, C.S. Lewis, to invent the fantasy world of Narnia. This is something that he mentioned, that C.S. Lewis mentioned in his own writings, so it's not just idle speculation. He did frequently write about his love of the countryside of Ulster, and especially the Mourne Mountains. There's a lot up our sleeve when it comes to the stories behind place names. So, I'm really excited about today's guest. Yeah, look, um, we wanted to talk about a specific element of place names um, that uh, excites me. Anyway, definitely, I know it excites you as well. And this is sort of remnants of our archaeological history and our cultural heritage. And, of course, Nadini Maha, the good people, the fairy folk, and where we see them in our top topographical landscape, I suppose, is, is the right way to describe it. So we decided to get someone in who knows a lot more about this than the two of us uh, combined. She's a, a consultant researcher on climate change law with a focus on just transition, but she's also the co-author of an amazing book called Men Who Eat Ring Forts. Uh, it's Sinead Mercier. Yay! Yay! Fault to the book, Laura Sinead. Hello! Some of our listeners are from around the world, from Australia, from Canada, from the United States of America, and they are, they might not be entirely sure what a ring fort is. How would, how would you describe one to someone you know, who, who maybe wasn't from Ireland and, you know, as I said, seen this written down somewhere but didn't know what it was? Well, I suppose the, the kind of thesis in the book is that... Um, kind of there's a distinction there's not quite a distinction but sometimes a distinction between ring forts and fairy forts so how ring forts would be commonly understood are kind of kind of iron age or even earlier um sort of homesteads so kind of celtic era or um even as as far back as the neolithic in, in some circumstances um of kind of these mounds uh in the irish landscape uh which were homesteads um and they are archaeologically significant i suppose because they tell us about kind of the way of life then um they're described as ring forts but um kind of subsequent archaeologists have have shown that you know that kind of term is, is quite kind of has this idea of this kind of very violent past but they were mainly just homes um but there's about 30,000 at least in the irish landscape if not more and that's quite wow. rare 
Yeah, and quite rare in Western Europe as well, um, because I suppose Western Europe has been heavily um, dug for agriculture and kind of very productive sort of intensely farmed landscapes. But they still exist in Ireland. But the interesting thing is that not every ring fort in the Irish landscape is a fairy fort. And sometimes you'll have mounds that are just kind of, or, or even fairy trees that are, don't have actually any archaeological significance. They're not recorded anywhere as being, um, you know, kind of a, a castle or a fort they're just they're just kind of a site that has this sort of magical property um of the of the dimi maha or like um kind of fairy lore and fairy legend attaching to them um uh or yeah so that that's kind of uh not every ring fort is a fairy fort um but uh, there are many kind of fairy forts and fairy trees and holy wells in the irish landscape and this idea that like fairy forts it's it's something that has just it's lasted down generations and generations centuries even might be fair to say millennia you don't tamper with these fairy forts you don't mess with them you don't uh you know you don't build on it you don't take down a fairy tree you don't break up a stone circle is that some kind of inbuilt deference to our ancestors or uh, you know at some stage did it become a real belief that the other world has a significant role in society and it's embodied in this in this geographical feature i think it's 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 more the latter i think that um and the the thesis so i, I studied uh, heritage law with tatiana flesas who's a wonderful lecturer in the london school of economics and during my master's in law i we uh, i decided to look at you know this kind of really strange <laughs> uh, occurrence in irish law where there was kind of new enough legislation trying to protect fairy forts uh, or ring forts sorry um from being destroyed because because we joined the common agricultural policy and, and agriculture was becoming more intensive there was more destruction of these um sites but the weird thing was that in all the kind of legal analysis and um all the kind of like uh, kind of courtroom um, descriptions and um, even from the environmentalists themselves who were trying to protect them. Brilliant people, this is no criticism of them, but they never describe them as fairy forts. They always call them uh, ring forts, which was quite interesting because um, everyone under, <laughs> it's, a, it's a live, it's a live uh, belief. It, like, it, like you ask, even here, like I had a conversation with a neighbour, I'm, I'm in County Clare, and they were like, oh no, I never let the horses near the, the fairy fort. Sure, we'd never go near it. And there's a story of like uh, another family that knocked the ring fort or the fairy fort and then there um, there was a subsequent kind of you know harm brought upon, upon their family and this is very much a live belief that um, even with fairy for with uh, fairy trees and, and wells as well but um, despite all that, and even the Gordies, so I called up and interviewed Gordie, and they were like, oh, it was dreadful what that farmer did. He dug up the fairy fort. But like, <laughs> but when it got to the court, <laughs> when it got to the law, nobody wanted to mention fairies. It was considered silly or strange or a weird thing to do. Uh, or... Even though, or they, but they operate really, really well as a form of environmental protection. And this is the question. I mean... <laughs> Like, <laughs> what is law? Is like, does law have this conception of itself that it wants to promote 
more than what it's actually trying to do. Because if the purpose of environmental law is to protect the environment, then why would you not use the dominant kind of pre-enlightenment or sort of um, kind of the kind of animistic? So animism is this idea that there's a spirituality in, in natural forms or nature itself, and humans should respect that. But if that exists in the landscape and it's working, why does law still seek to use language that will inevitably destroy them, language that removes that magic or removes that animism? Is it because law is more um, taken up with this conception of itself as like a tool of rationality, of kind of, you know, um, purpose of of development and, and capitalist modernity? Or does it mm. have... So that that's, that's kind of the thesis of the, the book. Qu- call them fairy forts, it works. It's funny because you, 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 you can imagine... You can you can imagine, I, I suppose, an, an activist or a politician in the early days just trying to produce, put some legislation through, and a, and a legal advisor saying, "Drop the fairies; they're going to think you're nuts." <laughs> Even though everyone thinks, you know what, and, and and it also ties in with the whole idea of not mentioning the fairies, you know, referring referring to them ambiguously as Nadine Maha or and. <laughs> It's, it's yeah, almost, yeah. Pyoga, yeah. yeah the, the idea yeah. that yeah, we're um, by by euphemizing them, we're all, it is it's yeah, we're we're paying them the high the tribute they've always demanded. Yes, I so I'll give you some examples just because I realize that you'd ask me to give you examples of how it's still living, but like they're, they're kind of liminal spaces, so these kind of in between spaces in in the land where you know, it, like you would find a highly productive field full of kind of cattle um, or full of kind of like potatoes or um, wheat and then, or, or rapeseed oil kind of plants. And the, but they would still be a fairy fort in the middle, even though it would be far more productive for the landscape to just destroy it. And there's very little legislation. The protection for them is actually dreadful from the state's perspective, um, but they still remain. And the the belief is live. Like there's an example of Sean, uh, of um, Quinsworth, so um, the <laughs> the owner of Quinsworth, he found a Neolithic tomb on a site that he wanted to build a series of, of supermarkets, and he uh, dug up the Neolithic tomb and, and brought it to his house <laughs> and put in his garden, which was obviously a terrible idea because then the Quinsworth yeah. Empire collapsed. <laughs> so, <laughs> mm-hmm. A so direct correlation. <laughs> this is what happens. Direct, absolutely direct. This is what no. happens. You'll have no. You'll, You'll have bad sess if you mess with the good people. <laughs> yeah, and see, it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek. You know, I think that kind of Irish absurdism works quite well. Uh, you know, like, it's not that people truly believe in the fairies. It's just that they're saying that they, you know, just, you know, they're keeping their options open. And <laughs> and another one is the Hill of Tara, so, which is actually quite a tragic story. So the Hill of Tara obviously is a, is a incredibly rare and, you know, hugely significant from an Irish and Western European kind of perspective, this complex of um, beautiful kind of forts, all thousands and thousands of years old, the seat of the high kings and queens of Ireland. And um, basically the Irish government entered into a private, um, public-private contract with a motorway company, which was invested in um, by billions by kind of foreign uh, multinational investors. And they decided to build the motorway anyway, even though I think it cost maybe max 40, 30 minutes, not even um, off the travel time for people into the city. And they built it anyway, despite huge opposition. Um, and the once there was like a huge, uh, a big kind of united cross-society uh, collaboration between, uh, you know, your old school hippies <laughs> who believed... <laughs> 
<laughs> that they needed to protect this site because uh, it's a living site as well in terms of pagan worship and also every year this year even we watched it all on the on um remotely uh as well the 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 light coming in through the window in, in Newgrange um but uh the yes because the government went through with that um that that caused the economic crash and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it also I caused knew it. <laughs> But there was a load of like, uh, I'll just read, I'm sorry now, I, I want, you, I'll let you guys, uh, mm. I'll just read out a quick bit of the footnote here that we have in the book. The Tara M3 motorway project was ill-fated. So during the construction, the signatory of the order to destroy Lismullenhenge, so Lismullenhenge was this, was basically Stonehenge, but made of wood in, and that was destroyed for the motorway. It was found during the motorway project. So the Minister for the Environment, Dick Roach, like during, very recently after he had signed for the destruction, he was held hostage by an armed gang in a hotel. Uh, and then Martin, <laughs> <laughs> and then Martin Cullen, the Minister for Transport, was in a helicopter accident. And then uh, also there, yeah, and there was a number, two other accidents as well. The, um, the stairs in the National Museum collapsed very soon after. And then there was also a uh, two um, workers, so just kind of ordinary workers on the project, also were severely injured. So yeah, I'm just saying. Uh, I, I had no idea. I thought I thought I thought that like the environmental destruction and the damage to our archaeological heritage was the bad shit that happened to us as a country. But I didn't realise it was so. It was so real. Listen, when it comes to these fairy forts and these these um, these remnants of 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 the other worlds that we've always cherished, what kind of place names do they tend to have? Because we we've all seen a few around the country, uh, like uh, Lissafuca is down in County Kerry. Um, there's lots of cahers, lots of dunes, and uh, lots of rats uh, around the country. Is there is there any particular one that refers more to fairy forts than say neolithic man-made uh, constructions um no so the the word rath is is kind of a big one and you hear that even rathfarnham uh, rathgar around dublin as well but they um i suppose the vast majority would have a significance attached to them because of irish uh irish mythology um it's kind of one place where it's pinpointed from. This is Eddie Lenehan, mm. uh, who was a kind of co-author on the book, along with Michael Holly and Ask Eaton Arts, um, published it. But the story goes that um, the two of the Danon um, were kind of tricked by the the, the Milesians or the Celts um, into taking the the underworld. So they were told that they would get far more land um, if they kind of you know shared it with the kind of the new and the new kind of invasion, the Celtic invasion to Ireland. And the two who the Danon were tricked into taking the the underworld, which were kind of represented by these um forts and, and um sites in the landscape, the the, the fairy forts. Mm-hmm. And they went underground and lived there. And the um yeah, so they're kind of that's where the legend comes from. There's also another legend which is that the um they were kind of during the battle of Lucifer and the angels against um, kind of the, the angel Gabriels, the good and the bad angels, uh, the kind of in-between angels <laughs> um, fell to earth and they went um, again and hidden these 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 landscapes. But they, they th- throughout Irish the history... The centrist angels landed in Ireland. <laughs> well, 
I think they were more Lucifer's kind of, you know, backers of it. Um, mm. but they, they, were the guys, they didn't fully support him. They were just, you got to hand it to him, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that's it. And uh, so that's another story. But uh, yeah, so you, there are often places where because they weren't consecrated ground, the, if you were an unbaptized child and, and you had been... Um, you had died uh, mm. without a baptism. You were bor- weren't allowed to be buried on the consecrated ground of the Catholic Church. So many of these um, forts, fairy forts, actually became sites of uh, for the burial of these people um, or children. So, yeah, that, that's they kind of have that sort of liminal kind of sacred quality to them, and that respect is is still living as well. We'll be right back after this short message from another great headstuff podcast network show spice bags takes us into the magical mystical world of irish foodstuffs and beyond spice bags is a podcast about food in ireland from an international perspective hi i'm may i'm an american food writer and i'm with my friends blanca a chef from Spain, and Dee, an Irish food editrix. And we are the Spice Bags, three sassy ladies with a lot to dish up. Join us for the chats. Sinead, you're just saying there about some of these mounds being used as burial grounds for unbaptized children. Uh, when, when was that reversed? Or when, when was that changed? Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Certainly around the famine, particularly prior to the famine, people wouldn't really get that like people there, a lot, there was a lot of marriages as well that would be outside the catholic church a lot of children would have been born without being baptized so i i suppose maybe it would be relatively recent because even in connemara or on kaharua and um, to there the coral beach and um, there's still kind of a um a large kind of killing near the beach there mm. which is is yes would be kind of recent enough i think well, there's a there's a there's a well here. There's a Bridget's well um, where I live in Clondalkin. and I can actually see it from my house. Um, and it's it's supposed to have all the magical properties of a Saint Bridget's well. It's good for the eyes in particular. And there's a rag tree up there, but it was used well into the tw- the early twentieth century as an unsanctified burial ground uh, for unbaptized children. The idea being that if if Mother Church wasn't going to look after um, the poor departed souls, then Saint Bridget would. Uh, and that she'd steer them into into the afterlife, uh, and it's it's so amazing that that sort of that that belief system. Obviously, that belief system was well enshrined in Ireland. This idea that if the if the Catholic Church said no, you're you're you have to find a workaround. Hmm. But I just think it's 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 amazing that that sort of pre Christian heritage has has lasted right the way through as well. Because we've spoken at length on this podcast about the the link between Saint Bridget and uh, you know. Any, any amount of, of pre-Christian goddesses that might be, um, I don't think contemporary is the word, but uh, mm. analogous to her. Um, but yeah, like, so we're, I suppose the, the question is like, did did the church not want to sort of take ownership of all of these fairy forts and, and ring forts and the likes in the way that they did the, the Holy Wells and many of the other uh, sacred sites around the country? I think that maybe it was kind of a point of shame for them in, in one that they that they would have probably had to kind of acknowledge the fact that people you know 
I suppose that their, their children, uh, that, 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 that the fact that you wouldn't, that an unbaptized child would be buried in this manner uh, might have been something a bit too difficult for the church to, at the time to kind of uh, reconcile with. But there are stories, like that story there about the Lucifer's angels is an example of the church, I suppose, kind of rewriting what is in a very uh, kind of old myth uh, to kind of fit the biblical context. And um, you get that as well. Uh, this fast, you, you might have covered this, I'm sure, already. Um, unfortunately, I haven't listened to your entire back catalogue. Uh, Darach, I'm very sorry. But <laughs> Shocking. But Shocking I, behavior. Shame. Boo. How did you get on? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we, Pater, I thought we had a vetting process. Yeah, it seems to have failed. We'll have to sack the producer who recommended you so much. <laughs> I'm so sorry. After I bought him tea, but, <laughs> but the um, there's kind of a good uh, there's a track record of this happening. So one thing I find very interesting is the story of um, Deirdre. So the Deirdre myth. So the mm. the, the Deirdre myth was kind of. Now, I'm very sorry. I have to find the, the name of the academic who wrote the original couple of articles on this. I know they were based in NUIG Galway. But that was originally um, kind of this va- fascinating study of what kingship c- should be. So what is the role as a, of a king? Should they try and control their subjects? Should they try and kind of manage the way, um, like micromanage them, and <laughs> basically, or try and, and assert their own kind of ego over the populace? Or should they have an idea um, that is more kind of allow the the subjects or that, that they are not actually subjects, that your role is more of a mediator? Um, the, so the Deer of the, of the Sorrows myth is basically kind of based on Trojan um, Hedona Troy, this beautiful mm. woman that brought about the destruction of, you know, these three brothers and her love and brought about the destruction of the kingdom as well. Um, and uh, the the fated battle, I think, between Ku Cullen and uh, is it Kukodan and Fiachar? Is that the two that fought the death? It was Kukodan and Ferdia. Yes, and Ferdia, sorry. I mean, Kukodan probably killed some sham called Fiachar as well. He killed a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> he probably he killed people. one or two Fiachars. He killed a lot of cons. The right pack of cons, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Careful now. <laughs> But in the, yes, so in the story, uh, I'm getting distracted with the crack. I was like, <laughs> there's very, very little of it done to lockdown. But I was like, but yeah, in so, the... <laughs> so Deirdre the Sorrows, yeah. Deirdre the Sorrows, sorry, we're supposed to be crying. So Deirdre um, <laughs> brought about the destruction of, uh, yes, so like basically the king at the time, the, the, the brothers as well. So, but because she was too beautiful and this is a kind of a motto for women, you know, don't be too beautiful and also try and be really pious, but don't be too pious. <laughs> you know, all this kind of like, com- like sacred and profane, yeah. the, 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 the woman is kind of on a pedestal or either something uh, profane that destroys, um, you know, uh, like everything. Women are the cop, like Eve, I suppose. Eve brought about the downfall of man and cast him out of the garden. Uh, so that was kind of the, the rewritten, because t- a lot of these myths were written down by monks um, which is brilliant and you know fair play to them but they rewrote them <laughs> kind of in, in a big, biblical yeah. context yeah. you know because uh, they wanted to assimilate the the, uh, the the pre-Christian culture into their own in a peaceful manner which 
I suppose is, is great as well. But yeah, what I mean, the- it is. But we end up with a we end up with a very we end up with a very bowdlerized version of a lot of the myths. You know, like uh, and yes. how the myths are full of women leading heroes astray, and a woman is the reason for Cucullin's death, and a woman was the reason for Fionn McCool losing control and going mad in his old age, and a woman was the reason Oisin was led astray, and a woman was the reason the kingdom of Ulster ultimately came to nothing, and it's like. Jesus, lads. I mean, this was obviously transcribed by celibate men with an awful lot of sexual frustration. I think it's very, very clear that the monks who are writing this down had had major issues, societal issues, patriarchal issues. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, look look at those round towers. That's pretty Freudian stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But then the thing is, I have a wonderful um, friend called Michelle Russell. Um, So her, her artist name is Mice Hell and she's doing a costume kind of history of Irish culture. So she's going literally back to Neolithic pre kind of the time of Newgrange and, and before and kind of charting what people would have worn, like doing kind of meticulous research. And she was saying, um, like, now I'm repeating what she, I'm paraphrasing what she's told me, but she said that uh, most of those monks, first of all, were not celibate and they were extremely violent. <laughs> that, they, <laughs> that they were going, there was huge feuds between different, like, you know, the, the kind of these monasteries were basically towns uh, in the day. So there'd be kind of battles between the different monks over different things. And, uh, and then you had, this is the interesting thing with St. Bridget, because she was a very powerful um, woman as well and a very powerful uh, abbess that kind of had control of a large quantity of land and had an awful lot of kind of uh, followers so like the um I suppose partly what some of the writing obviously must be structured with power as well that they didn't want they didn't want further more of these women I suppose didn't want to share the power uh and probably kind of wrote all these stories to um you know dear Miss Bridget who do you think you are <laughs> You're yeah. hungry, but, you know, you're going to destroy everything, which is interesting because why isn't she more of a celebrated saint? Her name, uh, Brigid, is like the, you know, the Mary of the Irish, the, mm. the, the, yeah, like basically our Mary Immaculate figure. And yet she's yeah. not kind of considered a, a full sort of on the same level as, as St. Patrick. You no, know? we don't and even we, get a bank holiday. I know we should get a bank holiday. That, that was actually my first piece of legislation for the Green Party. Uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you, still hasn't still still hasn't happened. Listen, it's a campaign prom- promise I can get behind simply because we need a bank holiday between Christmas and St Patrick's Day. Would you not rather a bank holiday in July? No, we get one in June and we get one in August and we get but one we, in May. You'd have, you'd have a great run. You'd have a great run, but you don't need a bank holiday right after Christmas and everyone's broke. Ah, you do. <laughs> you need a day off, man. After January, you need a day off. I'm going to say you need a day off. No, I need a day I off know after that the, the, One of the big issues has been that all most of Ireland's kind of, uh, I, guess, hol- I guess, national days or sorry, Saints days are in the wrong part of the year. They're in the the depths of winter spring or, or, or early wet spring. And yeah, it's, but it's, there's it's, none in there's none in early wet spring. All we get we get we get St Patrick's Day, which is can be yes, it can be snowing on St Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. and we get Easter, which is a movable feast. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be as late as May. Um, but yeah, we get nothing in January and February. I'd love a day off in February. I, I'd love a day off in February. It's a short month. Gets even shorter when you have a Monday off. I'm reading some interesting stuff with Silvia Federici and uh, also this brilliant book, Mehel by Anne O'Dowd. And um, okay. 
just this, this idea that um, medieval times were, were far tougher and I'm sure obviously from a healthcare perspective they were um, but also <laughs> well you... <laughs> I, I, I don't know I argue the toss on that one <laughs> but you did have an awful lot of uh, holidays because the agricultural year you'd be extremely busy during the summer and the kind of planting and the harvesting season but then you know like the, uh, there was a huge amount of bank holidays um, and uh, kind of festivals and and more free time in a way than perhaps you you know what you'd have in a kind of more Americanized kind of work culture. So uh, yeah, like the, the concept of of rest and time was was quite different then, and that's something kind of often forgotten um, or kind of not really mm-hmm. dis, uh, like looked yeah, at in terms the, of peasant the, life. Yeah, the idea that, that total productivity is something that needs to be aimed for is uh, it, it has just gone completely unquestioned. The idea that people are supposed to, you know, be obsessed with their jobs. As opposed to you know, well, I guess their their entire kind of role in in society and in and in, in their families and in, in in those things that the idea that you that you should pick a job you love and just constantly do it and that this has been run parallel with the erosion of workers' rights it's a damn shame. Yeah, I want to just bring back. I just want to bring back Beltana and Lunasa and Imulk and Sowen as mass outbreaks of debauchery, basically. <laughs> Uh, treat them in the way a holiday really should be treated, you know? I want to, yeah, definitely give me the extra bank holiday at the 1st of February, but let's also throw in a bunch of bonfires and naked dancing and, uh, you know, animal sacrifices if necessary. I'm not down with that myself, but, you know, if you want to do, do it, you, you really want, to do want it, that's these fine. Think, think pieces about naked dancing and animal sacrifices? You don't read them. Like, you know, just, <laughs> just, just take your clothes off and dance. Go with it. There's loads of like, you know, mar- like there's Mardi Gras. There's like the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Carnival in the, in the Caribbean. Like, there's loads of these festivals. We kind of have Christmas and maybe St. Patrick's Day. But like we should really have, yeah. a, there should definitely be a massive one before Lent. You know, like what? I don't know what the church is yeah. doing. Like why doesn't it? Oh, it's yeah. it's well, all into kind of, why can't it just talk about the holidays? Then we then people will go back to it. I think in the in the I think in the in the in the South American church, that's the big thing. Like carnival literally means a goodbye to meat. It's a party yeah. you have before Lent. Yeah. And I think it's, you, big, you, it's big in Germany too. And yeah, they, they, and they, they, they like it. They, it, it's, and you, you find even the, the countries that finish the sign of the cross with a little kiss, with a little chef's kiss, they, they have a very different attitude <laughs> to Catholicism than Irish people do. <laughs> Yeah. Pasta Catholicism seems a bit more enjoyable than potato Catholicism. Yeah, I, I, I was, yeah, I would pick pasta Catholicism or potato Catholicism any day of the week. Um, Maybe Pope Francis would bring it back. He knows, yeah, he's an Argentin. He's an Argentinian. Yeah, he's got that yeah, that Latin like flair. Maybe who knows? Uh, Obviously, the women thing needs go, to be. I mean, yeah, as far as popes go, yeah, the, the whole mm. women thing, and yeah, yeah he came out. Oh sure, look, we could talk all day about that one. <laughs> the women in the yeah. Middle East. But I, w- I want to go. Want to go back to yeah. I want to go back to let's let's um, let's do what the Catholic Church have done for centuries and put women to one side uh, for a bit, and uh, <laughs> let's get back to get back to fairy forts. Um, hmm. Because look, they they're they're not just um, they're not just a part of our our topographic topographical landscape and our our history now, but they've also become a massive tourist straw as well and uh you know this idea this fairy heritage it's um it's where um it's where buses stop um and i'm thinking in particular uh, i've read loads of reviews of this amazing spiritual uh fairy fort in Ballyalban in north clare 
um, and the, like buses from Galway will go there and they'll all just, uh, they'll get off the N67 and cartloads of tourists will head down and see this very well preserved earthen ring fort, uh, which they are absolutely told, hook, line and sinker, it's, it's a fairy fort. I mean, is it in the first instance? You said there's a difference between uh, ring forts and fairy forts. Not every ring fort is a fairy fort. And are we doing a disservice to the good people by allowing cartloads of people, both foreign and domestic, to tramp all over their sacred spaces? Yeah. So th- this is something interesting I-, I covered in the in the book as well. Like <laughs> I I find this fascinating uh, in the Irish kind of. <laughs> like mindset so like uh so i discussed this the heritageization of of nature um and the kind of the fact that like the state won't really allow kind of the so so how i viewed it was that you like brian friel's translation so you you have the the brian that play is about kind of this irish language community that has to come to terms with the ordnance survey and the rewriting of all the landscape around them in basically the words of the oppressor uh so you have kind of english um and you know not always like there's a there's some there were some wonderful folklorists um actually john creedon has done a really good kind of series of uh, documentaries on kind of very good people who were just kind of just trying to preserve things and a lot of they did preserve a lot of it in their writings but fundamentally it was kind of a military project basically a colonial project of rewriting the Irish landscape in the language of the oppressor and the even if they did get wonderful kind of descriptions from the folklorists or kind of um, uh, geographers that were employed the you know the the, st- the English state couldn't be bothered and just wrote down you know what it sounded like so you get like you know, on on um, one place in in Connemara is Mwikinach Idir so it's like a the pig shaped hill in between two sails, <laughs> which has like a very mm. kind of interesting, you know, kind of obviously the 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 you know the, the kind of um, seafaring kind of legend and the, that kind of aspect of of the area, but it, it's kind of it's translated into this absolutely meaningless kind of big long word Mwikinach. I can't even pronounce it. And Caro is the same. Caro means nothing. Yeah, but that, that's what it is in Irish. But the the English version means mm. nothing. Clonmel is another good example, and I'm sure you have discussed this already. But it means the honey meadow in Irish. But Clonmel is meaningless, and that's effectively what this the Ordnance Survey kind of did in in the vast majority of cases. And how I saw law in this context or environmental law is that environmental law is not there to preserve the environment as its fundamental uh, like raison d'etre that's not what it was created to do it was created to maintain just enough nature like in capital n i'm doing the finger thing (laughs) you can't see me (laughs) but just enough nature to allow to regenerate itself so colonialism or extraction could occur on top of it. It's like sustainable development in its very kind of thinnest form. And what environmental law does is that it rewrites the world and the landscape around it in the language that is understood by the oppressor. So land becomes completely disconnected from how the people in the region kind of see that land or the spiritual connections to it the like even the biodiversity properties that's a very new phenomenon from the 80s and 70s onwards and even then it only really exists in very narrow contexts where you mitigate the impact on the environment you don't try to preserve like kind of the environment itself as a whole for its own sake you know um 
And what, mm-hmm. um, so law kind of sees it as just land, as a kind of bundle of property rights, uh, completely extracted from the vision mm-hmm. of the land itself, uh, like in and of itself. And what kind of the state does is that it has this type of kind of exploitative regime of, of land law and kind of, um, which is mitigated a little bit kind of by, you know, um, kind of birds directives or habitats directives from um, mainly from the EU. And then it has this kind of heritage regime, which is like the nature for the, for the kind of idol, the, the idolatry of the state or for the vision of the, of the, the state's vision of itself. Um, so it protects sites that like, you know, like where Michael Davitt is from or like there are like num- numerous petrol stations for American presidents. <laughs> <laughs> I, I frankly, I can't wait to see who wins yeah, the battle for the Joe Biden plaza. It's either oh, going to be in Carlingford yes, or Claire so Morris. You, <laughs> and like you have, yes, yeah, so you have these sites that are protected for uh, <laughs> like the state's vision of itself. So Connemara National Park or like Millennium Park or and I'm not saying that this is a is a bad form, but it's it's important to unpick uh why the state is protecting these sites and not others. Why is the Hill of Allen, which is where St. Bridget is from, uh, why is half of that mined, basically, an open pit like uh quarry, while Crow Patrick, which is full of gold, mm-hmm. by the way, <laughs> um is it wasn't isn't touched at all. Like what does that yeah. say about the prioritization of, of natural context. Why was um, the west coast of Mayo a uh, beautiful kind of landscape, Irish language community, intensely kind of connected to uh, the landscape? And I'm not like there's obviously ugh, we, we go into the kind of blood soil kind of stuff, which is really dodgy and that's bad. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. um, but in terms like trying to be trying to kind of find that kind of obviously welcoming um, concept of landscape and nature that that's also inclusive, but also gives n- gives nature kind of a, a protection in and of itself and in terms of the, how the community views it. Why, why was that kind of area allowed to be like just dis- uh, destroyed and subject to gas flaring to, to facilitate shell? Where does the prioritization of capital and the protection of capital mm. by the state, when that clashes with heritage, heritage is just bulldozed literally bulldozed like that's what happened in Tara like you couldn't get a site more important to the Irish concept of itself from a heritage perspective even like if you were going to like um take kind of the the the, a a little bit of the tourist edge of it um that kind of selling of ourselves to to Americans like none of that could stand in the way of of capital kind of accumulation and but that that doesn't change and that's 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 universal that's not just an Irish thing I mean there's an ongoing battle to try and save Stonehenge from the building of a large road and even a proposed tunnel underneath it like uh, this idea of tunneling close to one of the oldest and most important heritage sites on these islands it just seems it seems pure dodge like it just seems like a really a really stupid idea and yet yeah capital is untouched like we, we've got lovely places we can point to amazing places like you know oh isn't the burn incredible and isn't the burn a remarkable feature of the irish landscape and it's like it's easy to preserve the burn you can't fucking build on it mm-hmm. <laughs> Hey Brian, and I think the fact that Crookpatrick, as you, as you say, I mean, like there there was no gold in Tara that we know of, and then there was then there was no gold in Underwood Key, but like it the, for some reason Crookpatrick well, did survive. It probably was because of its connection to a to religious belief. 
Yes, and it's and and there's other like Michelle Harrigan kind of um she's she was the brilliant editor on on Men Who Read Ringforts. She did a very interesting artistic project uh, based on kind of th- this idea the heritageization or the kind of kitsch that's what's happening with the re- the fairy forts not yeah. in all contexts mm-hmm. like i think it's i think it's wonderful that these people obviously kind of who they're well i think it's very sad and, and wonderful that these people who have had to emigrate because of poverty uh, and are now trying to come back and, and re-establish that connection and there's something kind of very sad there and that should be kind of welcomed and not giving out about any uh, american person that that is seeking to reconnect that's that's not mm. the problem at all. But the the problem, I suppose, is the the kind of that tongue in cheek. Do we believe in fairies or do we not? Uh, she did a very interesting art project called "Where Does the Law Stand with Leprechauns," and she looked at this site near her in Limerick, where uh, these two children came down, kind of I think connected to that whole kind of moral panic about the visions of the the Virgin Mary. Do you remember the Baden Spittle, the the crying Mary of Baden Spittle, mm. and so on. And these two children came the down moving from the statues, and yeah. said, the moving statues, they, they said that they had seen leprechauns on the hill. And um, everyone was like, oh, you didn't see leprechauns at all. What are you on about? And then, but then uh, <laughs> one of the, the, a couple of the local people were like, maybe they did see leprechauns. We can make money out of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think, I think, yeah, we're, we're, where you can make a few bob out of it, you've every every time. That's what we have to do. That's how we save all the fairy forts. Literally, just say you've seen the fairies and and charge people. Uh, to, well, then we can preserve the whole country if we just start charging people for access. Yes, commercialize our very beans. <laughs> That's what we'll do. Yeah, we'll all be like, uh, we that this is it. Basically, we'll. Yes, brilliant. Goatstone Shave wanted to put a wall around Old Donegal with casinos and chicken ranches and all that. Maybe if we just do that, let's nationalise the country <laughs> and start charging people for it. I think we'll, no. we'll live. Brilliant. So. No, but what I was trying to say was that the, the the fairy forts kind of are this, they're sort of, if you <laughs> uh, if you look at, you know, Tron, like the movie Tron, like, so the lawscape yeah. is like this huge big grid that's kind of covered the landscape in like a falsified kind of idea of what it should be for the capitalist kind of modernity of the state. What the fairy forts are, are literally these kind of black holes and the state doesn't know how to cope with them because that belief of the fairy is is real. You can't entirely commercialise it because some of the sites are good for tourists and some of the sites are good for kind of the heritage idea of the state. But some of them yeah. are just kind of like these weird lumps <laughs> and some of them are fairy trees, which, you know... <laughs> Like mm-hmm. they don't really work that way or they, they might be out of the way kind of holy wells. So they they kind of are spaces of resistance, I think, or a, a different way of seeing the world. And um, that's what they need to kind of be celebrated oh, yeah. as. So, yeah, <laughs> they're a way out, yeah. you know, of Tron. A way out of Tron. <laughs> a way out of Tron. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Sinead, we'd like, like to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. My favourite Irish word? Oh, wow. Um there's a lot. Uh, my actually, you really should have my dad here and my mom, <laughs> rather myself. My my dad's always uh, he's some wonderful phrases. One I like a lot is "hanshe near duurum," "hanshe near duurum." So that's when he came like oh, the northeast yeah. wind upon me. So he spooked me. He's like, oh, because <laughs> it's oh, a really fantastic. horrible wind, very yeah, cold. Yeah. And then there's another one. Uh, I love "clopolis," and then I like which is like the half light, the gloaming, the twilight, and then I like. Uh, Coheal. So that's the one that's most fitting, I think, here, because 
Timpalacht means surrounding, so it's very close to the Irish word, uh, sorry, the English word, which means environs us, separate from us, circles the human who is not part of nature. But cohil means the lived in life, and it's much more similar to bon vivere or like these conceptions of in kind of more um, indigenous cultures, particularly in South and Central America, where nature is like the lived in lived in life. So, yeah, cohil. I suppose. Hill. Love it. <laughs> when I was in primary school, that's what we called that's what we called environmental studies when I was in primary school, when I was in the girls' Ooh. school. It was Olus Cohill. That's why you're so sound, Peter. <laughs> so, <laughs> so oh, you'll issues. be back. Oh, you'll be back. Yeah, oh. that's we're getting her back on. <laughs> Sinead, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you on the show. Um We've barely scratched the surface of this ring fort full of fairies, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, but the book is called Men Who Eat Ring Forts, and it was funded by... Uh, Clare County Council, their Gaining Ground Arts Programme. So thank you very much, Clare County Council. <laughs> Clare is chock full of ring forts, of course. Yes, it is actually. Yes, yeah. There's some, another great book called The Dream Time of County Clare. Uh, the name of the author escapes me, but it's another brilliant book. Sinead, thank you so much for joining us. And in the meantime, it's a slant from me. August slant, Wimshire. Slant. <laughs> Mind yourselves. Hey, Dark again. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Motherfucker comes out every week in the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks to Brian for producing. Thanks to Chris and Shield for doing the art. We record our podcast on remotely.fm. If you ever wanted to make your own podcast, we recommend it. Check out the link in our show notes. Until the next time, mind yourselves. See you next week. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Every time you've ever sent a gift, I'm just wondering, what did you not put in? What did you keep for yourself now? I press the start recording button so that Brian has a little bit of a couple an, an outtake or something to stick in at the end, which you know lightens the mood.